Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. If you struggle with a tendency to perhaps strain your brain with an overconsumption of streaming media, we suggest you break the desperate cycle. Stop watching streaming media and listen to a podcast about streaming media. Press your mind, relax from the strenuous effort of tracking storylines, relieve the stress of trying to remember which character in the show is Claire, there's always a Claire, and enjoy an hour of celebrating your obsessions. Plus, today, our guest is best-selling author Marlene Wagman-Geller, whose specialty is sharing the real-life stories of famous, infamous, notorious, and celebrated women. But first, Fritz, what have you been enjoying this week? I have a great movie to talk about. This is Belfast. It's playing in theaters. I saw it at the Lamely in North Hollywood. And part of the beauty of this movie is its timing. We're in a dark and confusing moment on the planet and it's exactly what we need to bolster our faith in humanity. It's written and directed by Kenneth Branagh, amazing actor, writer, producer. Most recently, he was part of the reboot of Murder on the Oregon Express, which was really fun. This is the story of love and loss, family and friends in Belfast in the 1960s. This was a time when neighborhoods in Northern Ireland were being blown apart by what they called the Troubles, the never-ending battle between the Protestants and the Catholics. The story is the point of view of Buddy, a young boy, 10 or 11 years old, played by Jude Hill, who will break your heart. You just want this child in your family. <laughs> we watch Buddy's world wrench from peaceful to war-torn. We see him ache for his father, who has to leave town for periods of time to make a living. We see him develop a strong bond with his wise and amusing grandfather. We see him fall in love with an idealized young girl in his class. There's kind of a Romeo and Juliet aspect to this young love story. Let's just say uh, the kids, the boy and the girl, are culturally different. I'll leave it at that. Now, the jeopardy in the story comes from the fact that the family may finally have to move away move to England so that dad can have gainful employment, steady employment, and so that they can all escape the troubles. It's an awful decision because no one in the family has ever been out of Northern Ireland. Judy Dench plays the grandmother who is a silent strength and a prophet for the family. This film is just a salute to the mystical strength of family love. You feel good when you leave the theater, and I have to tell you, Part of what puts you in a wonderful mood is that the entire soundtrack is cuts from the greatest albums of Van Morrison, one of the famous residents of Belfast, wow. Northern Ireland. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I highly recommend it. Do you have any idea when that's coming to streaming media? That's a good question. I don't know. You know, they're in this thing now where they're trying to figure out what's a good balance. Right. They, they want the theatrical experience for people, but they don't want to lose money because people are still tentative about going out. So I don't know. I, I, I It isn't in any of the literature online, so I don't know. I think it'll be soon enough. I'll wait. I'll look forward to seeing that. It sounds amazing. So I watched a film, too, that I think opened in theaters, but I think it opened on HBO Max at the same time, perhaps. And it's uh, King Richard. You've heard I, about I this? can't wait to hear about that. The, the, the trailer looks great because these young women grew up in South Los Angeles. Yeah, I thought it would be a good pick today for Marlene because she celebrates women. Armed with a basket full of balls, motivational slogans, and fixed determination, Richard Williams launched his daughters Venus and Serena from the concrete courts of Compton into the tennis stratosphere. 
Despite or maybe even because of his lack of tennis experience, either playing or coaching, Richard dominates every aspect of the girls' training and trajectory. Before they are ever born, he creates what he calls his plan, and no expert or advisor will steer him from it. The film is engrossing, and it has the feel of both mythology and vindication because, as unlikely as it may have seemed back in 1995, we all know how the story turned out. There's no question that Richard Williams nurtured and guided two young athletes to success, fame, and riches. But as the title indicates, he's a king, not a saint. While vowing to never leave his children the way his dad left him, Serena and Venus have up to 19 half-siblings that the king is not much talking about. The film may not be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but it's chock full of grit and inspiration. Yes, Venus and Serena broke down barriers, but there is no mention here of Althea Gibson or Arthur Ashe, which are historically important nods. Richard Williams is played by Will Smith. Venus and Serena are portrayed by Sanaya Sidney and Demi Singleton. Ingenue Ellis plays the girl's mom, Brandy. You'll find King Richard on HBO Max. I, I'm always uh, cautious about sports movies because what you become preoccupied with is the sports skill of the actor playing the part. So how do these two young women do? I, if, they, if those girls were actually playing tennis, then they're very good at both acting and tennis. I mean, because Venus and Serena, what you think about when you think of them is just power. Yeah. So you've got to be able to duplicate that sense of strength and domination of the court and maybe they had doubles and they did something with CGI. I just don't know. But the girls are fantastic. Yeah, It's a great story. I remember when they were just coming into their full blossom and we would do news stories and go down to that South Central tennis court where they learned how to play. And that's the hood. It's really, you know, that's one of the toughest neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Oh, he'd get beat up all the time. Yeah. Because so, there'd be some guys, some guys trying to hit on one of his older daughters and he's like, get away. And they'd just uh, kick, kick the crap out of him. Yeah. And mathematically, what are the chances of two siblings being so phenomenally gifted in the same sport? That's crazy. Well, they didn't really have a choice because if he writes this plan before they're born, it's not like you can say to a three-year-old, would you rather be a lawyer? She's not given a choice. Yeah. She's told this is what you're going to do. But physically and emotionally, that's part of it too, whether the father makes up his mind to have that happen or not. They still have to be prepared for being at the top of the game in this competitive area. Of and he prepared them in every way, not just in terms of tennis and their ability in, in the game, but also in terms of their belief in themselves and their ability to handle the pressure that they would encounter as they walk through the world as important individuals, which they are. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, okay, it's time to introduce our guest. Are you super excited? I am excited. This woman has written about some really interesting people. Yeah, she's extraordinary. So Marlene Wagman-Geller is a writer of best-selling books which celebrate the lives of intriguing women. The books include Women of Means, Unabashed Women, Great Second Acts, Still I Rise, Women Who Launch, and the list goes on. Marlene is a teacher from Toronto who now lives, writes, and teaches English in National City, California. Marlene had been submitting manuscripts to publishers for years with no success until in 2008 when she read the dedication in Peyton Place, which reads, To George, for all of the reasons he knows so well, and she became intrigued. Marlene, welcome, and can you take the story from there? 
Sure. It's sometimes things just happen strictly through happenstance. And I remember Gwyneth Paltrow was going to star in the um, movie version of Peyton Place. So I thought I'd read the book first. And after I read it, just through chance, the book opened up to the dedication page. And as you said, it said to George, for all the reasons he knows so well. And of course, my inner Yenta was he. So <laughs> I had to find out, well, who was George and what were the reasons he knows so well? So when I did the research, I found the story, the interplay between Grace Metallius, the author, and her husband, George, equally as mesmerizing as in the pages of the book. And then it just dawned on me, well, why not take some classic novels? And because it's only in the dedication page where the author truly enters the confessional. Mm. So then you sort of get an autobiographical tidbit and who was so special to the author when he or she penned their, their masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the genesis of my first book, Once Again to Zelda, um, the stories behind literature's most intriguing um, dedication. And the title of the book was, of course, the loves on um, the title of the great Gatsby Zelda was his wife mm -hmm. you, you know and it's a great left-handed way for instance you got interested in teaching because you fell in love with the great Gatsby so in 10th or 11th grade when you're teaching and discussing the Gatsby what a great adjunct to give them your material which really makes it interesting and human and you learn the full story about the author it's a great way to teach history as well and it seems as though, from looking at all, all of your, your the books and your author page on Amazon, that the most popular book is the book entitled Women of Means. Is that correct? That's correct. So I guess we're obsessed with finding out that rich people are desperately unhappy. <laughs> Well, I think it is the schadenfreude um, aspect of it. I think the reason I first started writing the book is people always said, you know, that um, if I only had money, money would be the magic elixir to open all the doors and all one's problems if I just won the lottery. And so I just started examining the richest woman in history, like Lillian Betancourt, who owned L'Oreal, um, the lady who owned BMW, Doris Duke from the Tobacco fortune, the Woolworth heiress, and their lives, of course, their and their great wealth was not commensurate with their happiness. And it was just like a peephole into the very top of the 1%. And I think, like you said, that's where I'm getting most of the reviews, because that's a window into a world that's so far remo removed from the rest of us. So I think that's why it sort of peaked interest. And it also bursts the, um, you know, puts a pin in the bub balloon of if I only had money, everything would just be so wonderful. In the case of Doris Duke, though, there's like a third act payback with her because she took this family's wealth and became very philanthropic with it. She underwrites so many major projects, including NPR and public television and all these wonderful things. So it's as if she she made herself happy uh, in the end by by donating bazillions of dollars to needy causes. Right. And her father, that's how we got Duke, Duke University, because right. mm -hmm. her father financed and helped found. Um, he gave so much money to Duke University that they changed its name to, you know, Duke after him. 
So that was sort of the extent of his philanthropy. But Doris Duke had one child who died soon after birth. So I think that was her way of, you know, philanthropy Mm -hmm. because she didn't have any uh, children. And assuaging their guilt at selling tobacco to the world. Right. Emphysema you wouldn't have had the same <laughs> the same ring. Right. Um, let's talk for a second about Patrizia Gucci, because I think there's a new movie. <laughs> Is it telling the story that you tell in your book? Um, I haven't seen the movie, but I was just intrigued because, you know, most people like for all my books, it's really the background story. You know, you scratch the story that everybody knows Gucci, the double G's. But when you read about that Italian family, it's like some vendetta, some um, opera, like opera, because, you know, it was, yeah, she killed her husband, um, the Gucci heir, because he um, was seeing other women. And so, um, and, you know, she was just, she just couldn't stand that. So she ended up killing him and left her children basically without a father or a mother. And she was already divorced from him when she put out the hit on him, right? So she was divorced, but she was just so incensed that somebody would, you know, dump her, the mother of his children. And she just, you know, destroyed every his life, her life and her children's life because she was so blinded by, you know, hatred. And, you know, um, hell hath no fury like a woman spurn sort of exemplified (laughs) her. Oh, yeah. And I also want to there's a few people that I want to talk about and I want you to tell the stories. Um, Huguette Clark. Am I saying her first name properly? As far as I know, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, she has the house in Santa Barbara. Right. So we ride our bikes past that. And I'm always tempted to sort of turn right and see how far up the driveway I could get. <laughs> but I don't know if you've been reading the press lately, but there's some controversy around when this house is going to be open for tours and who's living there and how it's being used for private events. And there's a lot of, I I guess, abuse of that property that's been sort of going on lately. So let's back up and tell the story of little Huguet and how she wound up with all these empty mansions. Well, I think the story of how it was found out was really interesting. So there was this man and he was in Connecticut and just out of the blue, he said, what's the most expensive property in Connecticut? And there was, and they, he got the address and there was a gardener in the home and the gardener said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I've been gardening here 35 years. No one's ever lived here. And so the man, his interest was really piqued. Why would somebody have a beautiful estate in Connecticut and never go in there? And then he sort of turned into an um, investigative journalist and he found, well, there's one in Santa Barbara and a penthouse in New York and the one in Connecticut and she's never been seen. So he wrote a book called Empty Mansions and that's how he examined her story. And she was the daughter of a robber baron. For some reason, he was equivalent in wealth to a Vanderbilt. He just didn't have the high profile. Like he started Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things he bought all the land and he was um, and so his wife and older daughter died and he left everything to her. But she was like the female Howard Hughes. She just uh, was extremely, extremely reclusive. And then for the last, I think it was 25 years of her life, she lived in a, a little hospital room. Um, and when she looked outside, she saw an air conditioning unit, yet she had all these fantastic homes so and she 
but she um, surrounded herself by these French dolls that she dressed with, you know, Christian Dior. And so she was a little bit, you know, she was a little bit off, absolutely, which made her a prime target for the unscrupulous. Right. This yeah. is uh, really a fun book. Women of Means is fantastic. Yeah. Because you learn a little something about contemporary. I love him. Oh, I love no, him. It's, it's really fun. Uh, I, I like history and I love these adjunct stories. Now, I'll set this next question up by saying that, you know, Downton Abbey 2 comes out in March. Yes. Called A New Era. And uh, you've written about, I, I know I'm going to blow this name, Almira Carnarvon. Mm-hmm. Is that close? Yes, that's correct. Who is the real life counterpart to Lady Cora on Downton Abbey, played by Elizabeth McGovern in the in the series and the film? So describe this story. Well, Lady Carnivon, she married. Um, it was one of these situations where uh, an American heiress marries British royalty it's sort of cash um she had the cash and he had the title Mm -hmm. it was one of those marriages and one of the things that i found uh, very very intriguing was he was fat her husband lord carnivon was intrigued with egyptology and he was the one who financed um howard carter's um excavation of king tut and he paid for it and then um and it was only when he was going to um cut the finances when Howard Carter found it and Lord Carnivon and his wife and daughter were there when he opened the tomb and I and Howard Carter turned to Lord Carnivon and said I see wondrous things so I thought it was really fascinating she was the illegitimate daughter of a Rothschild Mm -hmm. and her father adored her but he never married his mother because she was his um her mother was already married, and so uh, he he unofficially acknowledged her. But that's why she was so wealthy from having her father, who was a banker, Rothschild, and um, and that's how she um, b- basically financed her husband's mansions and amazing lifestyles. Wow! Wow! Fun. Yeah. You talked about Lillian Betancourt earlier. This is really fascinating. She. Uh, was the owner of L'Oreal Cosmetics. First of all, what nationality was she? She's fr- she was French, right? And yeah. and and the, her father was the chemist who discovered the process. And what's the twist in his life? Well, the father, um, he discovered he was in a little um, second floor um, story flat and he discovered how to make blonde hair. And he called it L'Oreal, which is a French word. And he became fantastically wealthy. But he had blinders. The only thing that mattered to him was L'Oreal and his only daughter, Lillian. But when the um, Nazis occupied France he sort of went into bed with the Nazis because he was sort of an equal opportunity opportunist. So he didn't care <laughs> that the Nazis had, you know, their own agenda as long as L'Oreal could exist. And sort of like, you know, Coco Chanel, she also had an affair with the Nazi because, you know, she had uh, risen from an orphanage. It was and pragmatic. She nothing- yep. Yeah, nothing was letting her go back to that orphanage. So she had an affair with a German officer. And but with the twist with Lillian Betancourt, even though her husband 
uh, was a collaborator in Vichy, France. And even though her father was, her daughter married a Jewish man. So her grandsons had the unique perspective of one set of grandparents were in the Holocaust and the other one were anti-Semites. So oh the, they had a very interesting story. But I think Lillian Betancourt's tragedy is her and that one daughter, they just basically were at Daggerhead's all the time so that was her tragedy she had everything but her you know her family dynamics they were enemies mm -hmm. wow and let's talk about ruth madoff because a lot mm. of the, everyone talks about bernie and i think we know a little bit about her or we have assumptions based on just hearing the kind of overall story. We have assumptions about what she knew and what she didn't know. And now you don't pretend to know what she knew and what she didn't know. You just sort of talk about her loyalty to Bernie. Right. She was fascinating because, yeah, because her husband, everybody knew him. But it, what about how much did she know? And it's like when she looked in the mirror, what did she really see? You know, and on one hand, she she denies to death that she knew anything about what her husband was doing. But like she was collecting real estate like other women collect charms on a bracelet. Mm -hmm. And don't you, you know, he started off as a lower middle class Jewish guy. They were both from New York. And your husband's getting these chalets in France and New York. And don't you sort of wonder like, and there's never a bad day in Bernie Madoff. Like what's, <laughs> what's going on? And, you know, like she said, denied to death. And so, you know, if she was what she claimed to be in 1950s, Jewish housewife who had, you know, let my husband do everything, which was sort of the paradigm of women at that time, the 1950s woman, then she was just another one of Bernie Madoff's victims, like all the others. But if she was profiting and living the life of, um, you know, a gilded princess, knowing that her husband was exploiting everyone, Eli Wiesel, I mean, he exploited everybody, Hadassah, he didn't care who he destroyed um, until the house of cards fell down. So, but no matter what she knew or she didn't know, she outjobbed job because her husband was death by incarceration. One son died of cancer and the other son hung himself. So, I mean, she was, you know, maybe more sinned against than sinning. We don't really know. But mm -hmm. what really, what a tragic story for her. She paid a higher price than anybody else in the entire equation there. Yes. She, she paid a terrible, terrible price. And and when she went to get a co-op in New York City, the red carpet, I mean, the welcome mat was withdrawn for her because she was guilty by association. And there really was nowhere she could go because all of her friends had their money invested with Bernie. So no one wanted to take her in. And, and she this, was in Florida now, right? Didn't she move Yeah, to and the settlement was such that they said like anything above basic cable, they were saying no to absolutely any expense. So go ahead and talk about that. Well, the only one who didn't turn her back on her was her sister, mm -hmm. which had been a victim of her Bernie Madoff and her and her husband at age 75. They were so reduced in circumstances that they drove cars to the Florida airport, but they didn't turn their back. But she didn't turn her back on Ruth. So it's we, we can't really know. You know what? You know, when you look in your own looking glass, who knows what she really saw? But, um yeah. So, I mean, one of the books I wrote was on this premise. It was called Behind Every Great Man. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like Mrs. Freud, Mrs. Karl Marx, Mrs. Gandhi. And one of them was Mrs. Hitler. And it was the same thing. Eva Braun, who is Mrs. Hitler for like 24 hours, 
you know, what did she really know? Did she, you know, she loved Hitler, but um, what did she, you know, so it's like I, I'm fascinated behind the woman behind the so-called great man. I love that premise because when we see a deposed politician mm-hmm. and there's always the classic shot. The good wife. Of the wife standing by the husband at the press conference when he's denying his culpability or whatever it was. And they have to sit there with, a, you know, a semi-adoring look on their face or at least not giving away whatever their emotions are. I always feel bad for them to a point. But then I say, did they collude in this whole thing? You don't know. Exactly. Like in Pat Nixon, when her husband, yeah. Richard, was, I remember she stood there so stoic. And you just can imagine him. she's humiliated in front of the world. Her husband, you know, was fell from the presidency. And, you know, she stood by her man. But at what cost? I, I think that, you know, you study women and you your, your books are just extensively researched and there's just so much great and fascinating information. You can tell how much work goes into, you know, you, you put a, pour a lot of yourself and a lot of love into every chapter. But one of the themes that, that I find when you're when we're exclusively discussing women is that, you know, from from an early age, you know, we're sort of programmed that or maybe we're not just programmed, maybe it's part of our DNA to be nurturers. And so when you find yourself falling in with a guy, as Ruth Madoff did at 14 when Bernie was 16, or as uh, Mrs. Bill W. did in uh, another of your books that I read, uh, they, if, if, if a woman decides that her world and her identity are built around this man, it's almost like she, she would be destroying herself to remove herself from that. She doesn't know who she is outside of that glow. The identity. It's like Mrs. Wagner, I remember. She, her whole life was the cult of Richard. And when Wagner went uh, died, she wanted to literally leap into the grave. And the only thing that saved her, she started a music festival in Salzburg, which still continues to this day. And that gave her the reason to keep going like in memory of her husband. But um, there's a word called exorious when a man is slavishly devoted to his wife. Yes. There's not, for some reason, there's not a, a counterpart word when a woman is that for men, mm-hmm. which is surprising. It's almost but, expected. Yeah, but it's like, you know, the stand by your man, like the country song, Tammy, why not? She literally had a song, Stand By Your Man. So what you said, a lot of times, if you know, like especially when uh, if you grow up at a time where you're extension of your man, till death do you part, stand in his shadow, don't take the limelight. Yeah, these women would be destroyed. Their destinies, you know, rise and falls on their you know, their male counterparts. It feels like a similar dynamic to being in a cult where once this belief system is gone, who am I? Exactly. That's a good point. It's very cult-like. And I think we can help girls, and especially you as a teacher, we can help girls discover who they are and what they're about and what matters to them, you know, before they get married so that they always have that. Absolutely. Let's talk about somebody with an odder relationship with men. That would be Peggy Guggenheim. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, who's fascinating. I'm just interested in her because I've seen all these documentaries about Jackson Pollock, and she was the great uh, matron of the New York School of Artists in the Pollock era, the 40s and 50s, and had, you know, the the Guggenheim Gallery and the uh, uh, Art of the Century Gallery and was a great supporter. As a matter of fact, for Pollock, she underwrote him. And and so a very interesting woman. Talk about her. 
Well, Peggy Guggenheim, I also find her very fascinating. As a matter of fact, she was like, she slept with everyone, basically. And one of the few people who refused to sleep with her was ja um, Jackson Pollock. He said, I don't care if I'm not discovered. Uh, I just can't do it. <laughs> but, but, uh, she was, yeah, she was the heiress to the Guggenheim. As a matter of fact, Solomon Guggenheim in New York City, the, the museum of um, the Guggenheim Museum was her uncle. Um, she, um, the difference was he collected the old masters. She was fascinated by modern art and, um, these, and she went to France and she collected Picasso's and she, uh, collected modern art before the, um, modern artists were considered great, um, great painters. And when the, and she, um, had to leave France, of course, cause she was a Jew and she had to get out of France and she approached the Louvre to take her modern art and they basically said no no we are we only have serious art not you know modern art mm. but yeah her I think her brilliance was recognizing the beauty of modern art and as a matter of fact in Italy she had a palazzo which is right now her museum and she hung all her paintings there and she used to live there and it was right on the right on the water and she lived there I think she had like 12 dogs I forget what kind of dogs and even when you tie up the gondola it one of the things to tie the thing up was her dog and she was just a real real character yeah but she had tragedy too because um her only daughter um ended up killing herself and there must have been some feud with her sons because she left all her money to um the museum and none to her children they contested the will they weren't too happy about that but yeah and, so and she, she was, was the black sheep of the family right so uh, she I think her connection to modern art might have been a way of rejecting her father's more traditional art tastes. Right. Well, she was very, very close with her father, and he actually went down on the Titanic. Yep. Um, so, and and she was um, close to her father, not with her mother, and that was the parent she was, and that happened when she was a young girl, so that kind of traumatized her. But I agree 100% what you said. It was maybe she loved art, but there was the rejection of the her family's traditional values. I want to talk a moment about Gloria Vanderbilt, and I know that a lot has been written about Gloria Vanderbilt and the story. A lot of people know she's Anderson Cooper's mother. But talk about Little Gloria. I read a, the book Little Gloria Happy at Last when I was a teenager. And there's just there's a lot there. It was called The Trial of the Century before we were very deep into the century. Uh, so talk about the story because Gloria Vanderbilt, unlike a lot of the other women about whom you write, she did create herself despite all, all the riches with which she was uh, gifted by, by nature of her birth. Absolutely. She just didn't sit on her. I mean, she did have a tragic life because of the divorce. And just one interesting tidbit about the divorce is her mother was a twin mm -hmm. and her twin sister was going out with um, um, the um, Duke of Windsor. I mean, the, um, the Duke of Windsor. And when she left to America to support her sister in the custody battle, 
she said to Wallace Simpson, look after the little man. Well, Wallace Simpson looked after kind of literally, but had it not been for the divorce, maybe there wouldn't have been an abdication because she went to sort of relinquished her role as the girlfriend to, um, uh, you know, the king, the king. But uh, yeah, so she sort of overcame the very, very um, bitter custody battle. She had many, many... Um, love affairs. She was fanatically in love with Howard Hughes. He rejected her. She liked, um, she was crazy about Marlon Brando. He also rejected her. She went through a number of um, unhappy marriages. And then her son committed suicide, one of her sons, Wyatt, in front of her eyes. So he jumped, um, she had a New York um, penthouse, and he literally jumped out the window in front of her. And another son didn't talk to her for the past 35 years, but her and Wyatt like were exceptionally, exceptionally close. So she did have the close relationship with um, her son. And yeah, and the blue jeans, like she sort of left her swan on the butts of America. Yeah. So she was very much a businesswoman. And even when she became in her 80s, she wrote a steamy erotica novel. So she was, Wyatt's mother was quite the lady. Anderson. Anderson, sorry. And um, and so she um, so she didn't just rest on the laurels. She was a writer and she was a clothes designer. Uh, she was a society hostess. So she had many, many different reincarnations. And if you would like to read more about Gloria Vanderbilt's relationship with her son, Anderson, there is a book they wrote together called The Rainbow Comes and Goes. And there's a documentary, which is called Nothing Left Unsaid. And those are both beautiful works that were done uh, before her passing. And so they kind of commemorate that relationship. And uh, I, I think that Anderson always appreciated the Cooper side. He appreciated that his last name is Cooper. He really didn't want to be kind of like yoked by the the burden of the, the Vanderbilt legacy. And the rumor is she didn't leave him any money on his request. That's right. Right? Did it, do you know where it went? Did it go to charity? Well, you know, that's what I find confusing because mm -hmm. he's worth $100 million on his on own. On his own, sure. Yeah, and the mother's, and she always said, I am not going to leave it to my son. But at the end, she did. Oh. So she did leave the money to her son. Now, she had four grandchildren. One of her sons became a landscape gardener, very low profile, and has a bunch of grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So maybe she left, but she did leave her money to her son at the end. Maybe she just didn't want said. him to count on it. So she said, I'm not leaving you any money, and then surprised him well, at he, the but, reading of the will. Yeah, Fritzy, but he said he didn't want it. He said it's cursed to inherit that kind of money. And he, he's proven that by becoming his own person yeah. in his own right. He has a son. And I, I think he would like, he knows enough about life to know, I want my son to have the joy, experience the joy of accomplishing and yep. earning. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as, as the lesson that we take away from your book, Marlene, is that when something is given to you by virtue of you having done nothing, it loses its meaning, it loses its value, and it, it's not just that it's squandered, it's that it, it robs you of the life experience and the joy of making enough money to buy a couch and sitting on your couch and knowing that it's your couch because you earned it. 
Well, Warren Buffett said, I want to leave my children enough money so that they feel they can do anything, but not enough so that they feel that they can't do anything. It sounds contradictory, mm -hmm. but he says, if you give them too much, you're disabling them. So I'll give them enough, but I won't give them too much. And he's earmarking the rest for charity. Right. Bill Gates said he was going to do the same. I think so, too. And I, I think you can designed so that it come the, in the will that it, they come into the money at the age of 45 when they would be needing to send their own kids through college and at like money for doctors, money for education, money for the things that you, that can keep you up at night worrying, but not money that would leave you uninspired to go out and create yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about a fascinating character. And I just... I'm, I'm interested in this story because it, it occupied so much of our public consciousness about 20 years ago. Sonny Von Bulow. Oh, yeah. Who was poisoned by her husband, Klaus. And in the retrial, the appeal trial, Klaus was represented by Alan Dershowitz, which is what made the trial so famous. And he was found not guilty. And there was a huge acclaim for both Klaus and Alan. And Klaus did all the talk shows and would sit there with that smirk on his face Ugh. like he got, a, got away with something. But talk about Sonny Von Bula. Very few, People only perceive her as this victim. And we really didn't know that much about it's her. It's hard to get to know her when she's in a coma. Yeah, good point. She's not that chatty. So talk about who she was. She was royalty adjacent, right? And uh, talk about her. Well, Sunny, um, her her nickname was Sunny because she had a sunny disposition. But she, her father was a railroad um, baron, so she came into a lot, a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars through her um, father and mother's side. She um, and her first husband didn't work out, and then she married uh, Klaus von Burlow. Um, and she had a daughter with him and he the marriage wasn't working out. And it's like something we'll never really know because her two children from her first marriage were convinced that he murdered the mother because in his in her mother's will, she had said, if um, the if I'm predeceased and we're divorced, he gets nothing. It was very much he stood to gain a fortune if. Um, if she died before um, without giving um, him the money. Mm -hmm. So he had the motive to kill her. But did he get off because Alan Dershowitz was so brilliant? Or, mm -hmm. you know, we don't really know what happened. But he seemed like, to me, he seemed like, yeah, he always had a smirk. And when he was out on bail, he always had the three-piece suits. And he was at some upscale restaurant and somebody started choking and fell to the floor. And he said, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Like he was so like being into ooh, dramatic, ooh, ooh. et cetera. And so, um, but it was, and it was such a family dynamics because her two children sided said, you basically left our mother in a coma. His daughter that he had with Sonny stuck with him. Mm -hmm. So the family was torn asunder and it was just such a high profile case, not just because of Alan Dershowitz, but because, you know, it had everything. It had money, it had murder, it had a mm -hmm. family feud. It had it all money. in terms of salaciousness. And, and the, the interesting thing was that Dershowitz got him off on a real technicality in the appeal case. So you always wondered if they just, you know, he didn't, in a left-handed way, win this thing. It had something to do with, uh, you know, uh, uh, too much uh, diabetes medication right. being on the needle or whatever it was. Right. It was a real technicality. It so, was really, yeah. So he was like the OJ dream team sort of <laughs> exactly. get you off because he said, did she die of diabetic shock because she had all this stuff and she over, you know, 
but it left out and that's yes, all exactly. the jury needed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just one of these, we'll never know, we'll never know. It's a mystery. Um, we do, before we move on to uh, Still I Rise, which is another book of yours about inspirational women who overcame great adversity to, uh, to achieve uh, triumphantly, I wanna talk first about Patty Hearst. I think she's one of the last people, because you do write about your women in chronological order, and I and I love your writing style. It's just so enjoyable. So I'm just going to let you tell the story of Patty Hearst, because it's quite fascinating. She is the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. And you have a great line in your description that you probably wrote yourself. She went from heiress to terrorist, which <laughs> is a great description of what happened. I read, yeah, that was quite, I mean, her story is like, you can't make this stuff up, right? You cannot. You just you just cannot. And well, it was so. Um, yes, she was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst of Hearst Castle fame. Her family owns the uh, you know magazine. Um, very very wealthy. So she was in Berkeley, and she was you know and Berkeley in the sixties was a hotbed, of course, of political activism. But she was not part of that at all. And then this group. Uh, like you said before, a cult, it was almost like a cult, the Symbionese Liberation Army uh, broke into her apartment, um, kidnapped her for an agenda. And it wasn't for self-aggrandizement to get their own money, but they wanted her father to give out money to the poor. And so anyways, that's how we get the idea of the Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. another one, like, where does the truth lie? Did Patty Hearst voluntarily reject her extremely wealthy family and buy into this? And was she, did she become Tanya the terrorist by choice? Or, as she said on her trial, look at I was a young girl, I'm completely coddled in a Catholic school. I'm kidnapped from Berkeley. They locked me in a um, a cupboard. Uh, they locked me in a closet. I was subjected to multiple rape and brainwashing, and they made me. Tanya, the terrorist. So which which incarnation? And of course, I remember the story as it was happening and everybody was shocked. Here's this, um, this huge terrorist and she's wearing a beret and she's carrying a, a gun and she's robbing a bank. So, I mean, you know, people were just going absolutely nuts with her. And then at the end, she um, added her trial. Nobody like and when she was I remember when she was apprehended Nobody knew was going to be Tanya the terrorist or was going to be the the, the million multimillionaire's daughter. And I remember when she was arrested, she said, "Call me Tanya." Well, let me let me point out, and I do think that the Stockholm syndrome or hostage syndrome, I do think it's a thing, and it may be a special, especially a thing that that women are vulnerable to because if you notice, it's the exact same pattern with Elizabeth Smart. It was four, they were 14 and 18, perhaps close in age. And Elizabeth Smart was stolen from her home. And for maybe six months, she lived with these people. And when, when an officer finally said, I think this is her and pulled her over, you know, she's wearing all the garb and she's wearing the hood and everything. And when the female officer said to her, are you Elizabeth Smart? She didn't say, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> she said, what thou sayeth. So she was speaking like them. She had become one of them because that is what you do to survive. You acclimate to your surroundings for the sake of survival. And I truly believe that that's what Patty Hearst did. I truly, I truly believe she was a, a, vic, um, a victim. Absolutely. And now she's um, like this suburban mom. She raises dogs and she's very much the society matron again. So her life sort of came full circle. 
And what, what gave the story energy was it was you said Schadenfreude earlier. It's you know rich people getting what they deserve kind of a thing, mm-hmm. and, and they and people love to watch and uh, and wonder if. Uh, it wasn't a setup. Did she collude with the Symbionese Liberation Army to get his parents, get her parents to donate this vast amount of money? So it had all of those uh, areas of intrigue for the general public to watch for years. Absolutely fascinating. So I, I read a, a book of yours, and you have many collections. I think before I delve into the next book, which we're only going to have time to kind of like dabble in two of your books, but there's so much to discover if you go to Marlene's uh page on Amazon. But you have written all kinds of different books. And I guess you get inspired that if you, if you maybe you're inspired by one person and then you're thinking, oh, this would make an interesting collection of other women of similar ilk, um, similar backstory. But the one that I was drawn to is called Still I Rise. And you talk about Madam C.J. Walker and you talk about Betty Shabazz and Selma Langerloff and Fannie Lou Hamer and Bessie Coleman, Wilma Rudolph, Sonia Sotomayor. Let's let's talk about Hattie McDaniel, first of all. She's the first uh, African-American female to win. She didn't live a very long life, but she was just a really extraordinary individual. In 1939, this woman is nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. She was not, they had the the premiere, I'll let Marlene tell the story, but they had the premiere in the South on a plantation. Mm-hmm. Great place to have a premiere of Gone with the Wind, right? Mm-hmm. She was not allowed to be that, at the premiere. Go ahead and talk about it, Marlene. Yeah, well, Hattie McDaniel, I was recently thinking about her because when there was a big brouhaha over Gone with the Wind, remember they were saying they shouldn't stream Gone with the Wind. Right. And because they were saying it really depicts uh, depicts the, in a positive life, the antebellum South. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, having done the chapter on Hattie McDaniel, the thing that she was the most proud of in her life Mm -hmm. was winning and starring in Gone with the Wind. So to deny the film is to deny um, her great accomplishment. And I think it was so special when she won. Um, and you're right, when they had the premiere for Gone with the Wind, she wasn't invited. And Clark Gable said, I'm not going to go because unless she's invited, I'm not going to go. And she said, you know, please don't start. Uh, and and so she just didn't go. But she said when she went to the Academy Award, she was put in a, um, for the award ceremony, she had to sit in a table, a segregated table right next door to the kitchen. Even in Hollywood. Even in Hollywood. That's just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. And when she gave her acceptance speech, she was very nervous. She dressed in white gardenias in her hair and a big purple suit. And she just said, I hope I'm a credit to my race. And um, she basically left. But it was interesting. So she won the Best Supporting Actress as uh, Mammy in Gone with the Wind. And for, I think it was 75 years, no other African-American won the Academy Award until, um, I forget who did it when she won for um, uh, In the Help. She won for Academy Award also as the maid 
in the help. So 75 years later, I can't remember the actress's name, but she also won um, for a role. And she dressed exactly the same gardenias and the same outfit as Hattie McDaniel had done 75 years earlier. The difference and, being that they both played maids, but yeah, were, the help yeah, is specifically... The they were both, both won. Right. But, actress, but of course, you know, it was for the maid. But, um, and then, you know, Hattie McDaniel, she went through, and then what was really interesting because it was so controversial because when she accepted the role as Bambi and Gone with the Wind, both the black and white community ostracized her because the black community said, you are playing the role of the 300 pound mammy with the thing on your hair and the big plantation dress who talks, yes, master, no master. And they said, you're being like a, a white uncle Tom and you're completely, this, this movie is a Valentine to the slave owning South and you're buying into it. And they ostracized her. And then, um, and then, and then the North basically, you know, and then the other side, um, the black community ostracized her and the white community, community didn't let her have um like like I said she couldn't be part of the peach tree that's where the opening was um academy award so I mean she got it from both sides Octavia she said Spencer I, Octavia Spencer yes she yes, said I can make $35 cool. a week playing or being a maid or I can make $3,500 a week playing yeah. and yeah. the other side of that no argument greener. is no there greener. weren't that many blacks that had dominant roles in white films at that time so it was about the employment they it was slight gain in employment as well whether or not she won the academy award so it's just a complicated well you know gone with the wind is an extremely well-known film but there are many many films that you could easily argue should never be shown again they're Mm -hmm. completely racist but i like the way they handle it and they must have had meetings and discussions and the way that they handle it on turner classic movies which fritz and i are both obsessed with is they they just say like ben Mankiewicz says we're just going to let the films roll and you can take away from it whatever wisdom you you have that that wasn't in the minds of the people who created the film. But we're not going to censor these films. We're just going to play the films. Because, you know, people don't do, artists don't do anything in a vacuum. Right. When Margaret Mitchell wrote Gone with the Wind, that was what she knew. Like, like the pyramids aren't the last because they were built by the Jewish slaves. They're still wonders of the world. So you can't say, oh, we, we're going to ostracize the pyramids because it was built on the backs of the Jewish slaves. Cancel I mean, culture. Art- mm. No more pyramids. You know, yeah, that's, that's the, you know, you can expand, that. You can expand that argument out. This is exactly the argument we're having right now with, uh, the, uh, with, with the argument about what to teach in school. Do we, do we teach Huckleberry Finn? Do we teach Beloved by uh, Toni Morrison? Uh, because those are real expressions of the black experience and the vernacular at that particular time. So that, that, that argument has not gone down one bit since we argued about it with Gone with the Wind. No, but I think that, like, if we're going to make a straight-up comparison between the maid portrayed in Gone with the Wind and the maid portrayed by Octavia Spencer in The Help, The Help is specifically designed to help white people understand the, like, relentless indignities of being a black person in the South. It's just absolutely Absolutely. atrocious. And reading that helps me understand. Plus, not only that, look at the power difference. Octavia Spencer in The Help ended up having the power in that movie. Oh, yeah. She manipulated all the circumstances. Hattie McDaniel was just 
you know, Business she was a slave. Business manager, Mammy. Right. She right. had okay. to learn by experience how to birth a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so great, she great. did learn something. But yeah, the only way for people with white privilege to learn is to read. It's to mm-hmm. read about the experiences of other people. So, you know, these, these books, these movies are important if they can help us understand what it's like to walk in the skin of another human. And, and you help us with that through, through your writing, you know, through, through exploring the lives of these people. Uh, so let's talk about Sonia Sotomayor. I didn't know anything about her. And uh, I guess she's written an autobiography, but, you know, she's, not, she's the third female and the first Latino, Latinx. On the Supreme Court. Talk about her. She has an extraordinary back backstory. Well, what you were saying before about Venus and her sister, uh, Serena, like yeah. how they came from Compton to dominate, you know, usually the elite world of tennis. Well, Sonia Sotomayor, she was um, of, of um, Puerto Rican descent, and um, they ended up in a tenement in New York. And her father died of alcoholism. And what a success story, because instead of, you know, being another victim of the tenements of the, you know, um, she basically put herself through law school and she sits on the Supreme Court of the United States, which is absolutely mind boggling, you know, for anybody. I mean, when are we ever going to meet somebody who sits on the Supreme Court of the United States? But, you know, usually I would think if we looked into some of their backgrounds, they came from, you know, very, you know, probably you know, affluent homes, but she came from that. She said her mother never even wrote a check. She didn't, they didn't have anything to being on the Supreme Court of the United States, which is, was just amazing. And just as a little aside, one of my friends, she um, took a special degree because if you want to argue in front of the Supreme Court of the United States, you can't just be a lawyer. You have to get a special certification. And one of my friends, she just had a challenge. So she got that special certification. And when you pass it, one of your rewards is you get to have lunch with one of the justices. So she was, Emily was paired, my friend Emily, she was paired with Sonia Sotomayor. So she buys like a red power suit. You know, she's all excited. And she goes to Washington, D.C., and she's having lunch. And at first, you know, it was very stiff conversation. And she's being very much, you know, the Supreme Court justice. And then her mother calls. Her mom calls. And she says, oh, you put me in this home and I don't like the food. And she was yelling at her mother in Spanish. And that sort of broke the ice. And then, then she said we were talking just like she wasn't the Supreme Court justice. She was just somebody having mother issues like anybody <laughs> could relate to. So that was just a little bit of a side. But, you know, what a remarkable, remarkable woman, woman. Yeah, just truly. I mean, what a mind. And and to know the the strength of her mind and to go ahead and exercise it to its greatest capacity. I have a feeling her job is very lonely right now. (laughs) She's got a couple of friends. I mean, even maybe in one of the books that I didn't read, who, who would you like to talk about that you think people should learn more about? Um. Well, say which book and I'll say which one. Any particular, say a book and I'll. Let's do it. Let's put it this way. Is there somebody. mother loves all her children. ah, Is there a wish list? Is there somebody you would love to interview before your writing days are over? Mm, 
I would, well, I was really interested in Maya Angelou mm-hmm. because she's a, she was from Still I Rise. Yeah. Um, and she was just amazing too because she had every strike against her. She was born in Arkansas when it was, and so she was going through when she was growing up in the 30s in Arkansas and she was fighting poverty. She was fighting racism. She was fighting sexism. She has that trifecta. If that's not enough, then she was raped by her mother's um, boyfriend. And she was so, and then her uncles did vigilante justice and they took the man out and killed him. So she wasn't traumatized and she was only nine. She wasn't traumatized so much from the rape, but she said, my voice, because telling on this man got him killed. And she literally stopped talking for five years. Mm -hmm. And her life story is how she got her voice back. And when she spoke at president and President Clinton during his inauguration, he invited her to be the poet um, to um, to speak at his inauguration. And before when they were sitting backstage, he turned to her and said, hey, not bad for two kids born from the wrong side of the Arkansas track. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what an inspiring story and just everything that happened to her. She lived so many lives in one. And so she was just such a remarkable woman. And that's why the book I called Still I Rise after her poem, because she said, no matter how many times I'm beaten down, I'll still get up again because I'm stronger than anything life can send my way and, like how inspiring how inspiring mm-hmm. that is and may i also add that we're not all going to become my angelou we're not all going to become so sonia sotomayor but the the woman that my angelou talks about in her book when maya was not speaking was a woman who recognized how bright the girl was how much she was reading and i can't remember the woman's name but she said to maya she said if if you want another book you're going to have to speak cuz it's it it does us it does us no good for you to read and not speak about what you've read and this woman we can all be that person in the life of a child we can all look around us and recognize which the children in our lives need a little bit of special attention from us we can all be that hero in the life of in the life of a child and that that woman i think Mrs. Flowers was Mrs. Flowers, Flowers she she's the hero of that story she saved that child. She she gave the world Maya Angelou. That's right. And that's an interesting point because for everybody who sung, the, um, there's the unsung people behind them that capitulated or sort of like were the foundation, which they couldn't have climbed otherwise. So, yeah, that's a very good point. So Miss Flowers, she was the hero of that story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wonderful. I love that. And what are you working on now? Where can people find you? Well, my editor said, because um, I'm actually working on two books. Okay. Because, uh, um, so my editor said, because um, people are interested in Woman of Means, she said my next book, I should profile like royal women. Mm. So it doesn't have to be necessary princesses or queens. It can just be countesses or duchesses. And they're like the woman of means on steroids, because not only do they have the money, they also have the pedigree. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of the book is sort of gives a peephole into the palaces. So it's going to be similar to the woman of means, but it's going to be um, like the Duchess of Alba, the Spanish Duchess. She was such she was hysterical or, you know, just the story behind the stories of the world. Royalties. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I'm working on is I'm really having a lot of fun. I think I'm going to call it um, it's the lady and then later the gentleman vanished. Like, for example, we all know Mercedes Benz. 
but who was Mercedes, mm. oh, um, the great. real girl Mercedes. Or we all know Peter Pan, but there was Peter Llewellyn, who was he? Mm-hmm. Um, we all know Craig's List, but he's Craig Newkirk um, from uh, Northern California. So it's sort of like the names we all know, and all of a sudden it dawns on you, oh yeah, it was Porsche. Uh, like Ferdinand Porsche, he des- he was brilliant. So you think Porsche the car, but Ferdinand Porsche, he designed for Hitler the Volkswagen. Hitler said the people's car. And then he designed, um, with his son, designed the um, the Porsche for the luxury car. So behind the well-known names, it's like, or like we all know the Eiffel Tower, but we don't really know much about Gustav Eiffel who created the tower. Mm-hmm. So it, like I'm having a lot of fun with that because I'm learning as much as I write because I didn't know these stories. So um, I'm really learning a lot as I write it's about it. It's a great way to learn history because when you plug in something like you mentioned, Craigslist or Porsche or words that are part of the culture right now and part of the fabric of those of us alive, that's an that's a, a launch point to get kids and other people interested in that topic. I think it's a brilliant way to teach. I really do. You do you have any research secrets? Do you just use the internet or do you pick up the phone and boldly call people and try to get interviews or visit places and try to speak to someone who knows? Well, I did. At, in the past, I was hampered because I had to do it in the context of a full-time job. Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, I would work all day and then I'd come home and I'd write. So I wasn't really free to interview people that much. But I remember from behind every great man, I tried to interview people. I was on. Um, and so one of the men, one of the women I did in that book was Timothy Leary. Mm-hmm. So. I have, and I said, I, what was it? What would it be like to be married to Timothy Leary? Oh, Can Lord. you imagine? It'd be what trippy. That was like. So his wife was um, uh, had passed away, but I was able to interview her roommate, mm. and she told me a little bit about Timothy Leary firsthand. And another one that was a kind of interesting is Thomas Beckett, um, his long-term girlfriend um, that he was um, with for many, many years. He had an affair on his wife. And I actually contacted her daughters. And the first daughter, I said, you know, what was it like? Your your mother was the long-term girlfriend of um, Thomas Beckett. And the woman who I talked to, she was the dean of the University of Edinburgh. And she said, I don't want to talk about it. I have mother issues. And I thought, wow. well, you know, we all have mother issues, but Beck had paid for your whole education. This is her bond. I had mother issues. Nobody paid for anything for me. <laughs> you know, hey, I would I would do it, you know. And then her other daughter was head of women's studies or Chinese culture studies in Berkeley. And then she she said, I won't talk about my mother. Yeah. So, I mean, but I did try to talk um, to them. And then another one who I was able to talk to was um, it was, oh, I just um, Samuel Beckett. Um, He was um, I was able to talk to his. Oh, wait a second. It it wasn't Samuel Beckett. It was um, I just lost it. But I was able to speak to his Thomas Huxley, mm-hmm. uh, Adolf Huxley. Uh-huh. I was able to speak to uh, the best friend of Adolf Huxley's wife. And so what was Mrs. Huxley like? And she did LSD with, you know, adults and stuff like that. So <laughs> she told me a few little tidbits. And then she says, and then she, some people are such characters. And she said, you know what? I am the largest marijuana importer in the North Coast. And I said, oh, wow. You know, what do you say to that? I go, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's Congratulations. nice. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, you know, so. Mom- 
Yeah. So, but now that I'm retired, I'd like to do more. So, you know, because I was hampered in the past and, you know, Marilyn, her best friend was diamonds, her best friend, but you know, for a researcher, it's the internet. And as long as you go through very reputable sources, like the New York times, the Mm -hmm. Washington post, Mm -hmm. the guardian, um, Sometimes I had to go through secondary sources like Mrs. Gandhi for um, Behind Every Great Man. I said, everybody knows Gandhi. What was it like to be Mrs. Gandhi? Mm -hmm. And I remember there's a little Indian um, restaurant around me. And I said to them, oh, could you tell me a little bit about um, Mrs. Gandhi? They go, no, no, there's no Mrs. Gandhi. There's, uh, you know, and they go, even the Indian people forgot her. Wow. So there was very, very little research, but I finally found a book which is under the genre of a hagiography, which means a biography that's very slanted in favor of one person. Mm. And her grandson wrote about her. But she had such a fascinating life because, um, you know, when he fasted, she fasted. Um, And when she married him, she thought, oh, I'm getting to marry a British educated lawyer. I'm going to have such a nice life. No, no. No. But but let me just say, not a lot of laundry, not a lot of cooking. (laughs) <laughs> not a lot of laundry, not a pet, but at the last part of his life, he said, my whole life is to have power over my body. So he started sleeping in bed with naked teenage girls. Oh, but he always did something because he always had one mid-age crisis. And he says, you know, the only clothes you can wear, you have to spin yourself. And she wow. had such a hard life because when the British um, arrested Gandhi to get him to call off his resistance, they said, well, um, well, um, arrest his wife to lean on Gandhi, but it didn't work. Gandhi said, you know, if she dies, she died for the cause. Oh my goodness. So it was, yeah. And, but she was such a remarkable woman. And even when she was dying in the British jail in India, her oldest son, um, they had four sons, the Gandhis, and the oldest son completely rejected his father. He said, you know, you were so be- busy being the father to our people. You were never one to ourselves. And the son broke Gandhi's heart Aww. because he dressed in British. He dressed in British clothing. He smoked. He drank alcohol. And even at the end, when he was visiting his mother, he said, there's a new thing, penicillin, take it. And Gandhi said, no, no, that's Western, you know, black oh, magic. Goodness. Just drink from the Gandhi's river and she i think at the end she said just i'm so over this guy let me go let me go (laughs) you know yeah really what was interesting about the book is we like it humanizes these great men like Mm -hmm. whenever before i read the book i always thought of Karl marx as you know the world's foremost economist but basically he was living in a slum in london with his wife and seven children and the foremost economists in the world didn't know anything about money they were living one of their children died of rickets because they couldn't afford food or fresh fruit oh my goodness and he would leave his wife and he would go every day because he couldn't stand the noise and he'd go to the british museum but he was very much a romantic figure too you wouldn't think it but they had four daughters and each one was called jenny after his wife So it was like, you know, it's just mind boggling. How did these women who were married to these great men, they just completely got 
sideswiped into the oh, dustbin. Yeah, you have to swallow food. yourself into it and just. I guess you know, great men. Not no offense, but well, I, I, great men are sometimes not big on sharing spousal credit. Perhaps. Oh my because goodness! These women were amazing. Like even the chapter I loved on Mrs. Einstein. When Einstein he married Malevna Malovna, she was from the. Ukraine or Yugoslavia at that time. And she was so brilliant because Einstein took three times to get into the Zuri Polytech, which is equivalent to the American MIT. She got in first try. Oh, she, she was, was didn't she have a little bit of polio? She was brilliant. Yes, yeah, she had a little bit of polio. She was brilliant. And when Einstein wrote her a letter and he wrote, and these letters were in Jerusalem, they were published 50 years after his death. And one of the letters that he wrote her said, when our great theory of relativity. So why did he use our unless he was using the royal our? So did no. she work on the E equals MC squared? She, she worked on a lot of the research. And she he, was E. He did. He, he did. She was and the E. He didn't credit yeah. her. And I think wow. that was part of what, you know, because to add fuel to the fire, he was a he was a notorious philanderer, too. Right? I think he, he took up with his cousin or something, ultimately. Well, he married his cousin. But one thing that bothered me about him is with Malevna, he left her in Europe because he had to escape because, you know, he was Jewish. He left his wife and two children behind in Europe. And his oldest son became a professor at Berkeley. And they said, you know, how do you feel about your father? And he said, the only scientific experiment my father ever gave up on was me. Very Aww. bitter to his father. And Einstein's younger son, he was a hopeless schizophrenic. Right. And the last 30 years he spent in an institution. And his Einstein never visited once, uh. never sent money. So that's a theme that you've established between Gandhi's children and Einstein's children. But really, I mean, the brilliance and the drive that goes along with being a genius and the responsibility uh, takes away your family connections and that's a really maybe there's another book although it'd be very depressing i think if you're if you're the the, forgotten children of famous people i think if you're of the world in that way i love that if you're of the world it's intoxicating and your the immediacy of your home is just kind of paling in comparison to being the father of all of science or the father of all of india when you when you when you you know you're einstein you're driven and you're so driven that all of your time goes into whatever you're working right on. right he said you know as the theory, as i still haven't conquered the world of quantum physics what matters if i wear mismatched socks like he said <laughs> you know don't bother me with details yeah. so i think sometimes when you're so above beyond other people like if you're a steve jobs or an einstein you sort of write your own laws you don't feel like the mm-hmm. common morality applies to you because you're outside the pale maybe on the basis of your genius i'm not saying that's how i feel i think that's how these people sometimes have a sense of entitlement because they're so beyond the pale in terms of brilliance who needs combs like you united states yeah exactly yes. who know? needs a comb all right so we're gonna tell people how they can help us get our show and share it with those they love. Go ahead, Fritz. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. It's all binge-worthy. 
And I'll just give you an example. Lee Sklar was one of our great interviews. He's the world's greatest bassist. He's got more recording sessions than any other single musician who was part of Carol King's original band. Well, last Saturday night, he played on her induction ceremony, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So you'll see the face and the long beard, which is part of the talent that you heard about on our show. We had Gary Puckett, Elaine Boozler, Bill Medley, who's found the new Righteous Brother and is back on the road, Tony Dow and Bill Moomy with great stories of being huge stars at a very young age. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our guest, Marlene Wagman-Geller. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Damanda, John Maddox, Sharon Belly, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman and Marlene Wagman-Geller, and we will see you along the media path. It was really interesting, Marlene, honestly. Now, don't go, don't go anywhere because we're going to stand in front of the TV screen so we can take a picture.